you know, if, if you're a, if you're a young girl and you're, you're taking testosterone, these are irreversible things. Your voice will change permanently. Uh, if you're on it long enough, you'll have to get a hysterectomy because your, your reproductive organs just sort of start to, to deteriorate on the inside. Um, and you're going to get facial hair growth. I mean, these are, these are things that are completely irreversible, you know, Hello, everybody. You're listening to Chatting with Candace. I'm your host, Candace Horvath. Before we get started on this week's episode, if you want to support the podcast, you can go to chattingwithcandace.com. From there, you can sign up for our Patreon account where you get early access to episodes, or you can click that little link that says buy me coffee. Both things help a ton. Also, a simple way to support the podcast is simply by leaving a review, five-star review, a comment, sharing it with a friend, all that stuff is awesome. So without further ado, please help me welcome Colin Wright. So when we were, when I was uh, doing my research for this episode, I was like, I can't believe we're still having these conversations online, especially on Twitter, where I feel like it doesn't highlight the best of humanity all of the time. Um, And then I was watching an interview with, what is her name? Um, Is it Megan? Megan Murphy? Yeah. 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 That was really, really informative. But um, yeah, that was a fun. That was a fun interview. I've been a big fan of Megan's for a while. Yeah, I, a lot of people have been suggesting to have her on, but I'm not familiar with her, so it was cool to be able to see both of you in the in the same episode. Um, I guess I've, I feel like this is like a dead horse that I've been kicking, and I loved your analogy of saying that you're like a Taco Bell menu <laughs> where it's kind of all of the same stuff, and you're just like representing it in like this new package, and you feel like you just keep having the same conversation over and over. And I feel the same way when it comes to this. And I still feel dizzy when I talk about it. So when you have people that are arguing on the other side of like the differences between like sex and gender and this spectrum for both of them, or maybe the non-existence or that they're all just based off of um, culture, like there is no biological underlying evidence for any of these things. Can you give the listeners like a brief description of the difference between sex and gender because i know a lot of people it gets very blurry yeah so uh i don't know how many of your listeners will know but i i was an academic scientist up until just a year ago when i left um and i got a job at colette so i can sort of speak more freely now than i have been um but i sort of came into the the whole culture war thing because I had noticed sort of a a way the conversation had shifted around sex and gender before maybe five years ago or so, even three years ago, when people would talk about what it means to be trans, they'd always say, you know, they had this very strict wall between sex and gender. You know, your sex is what you're born with based on your anatomy. And then your gender is how you identify. So there was sort of this idea that we have kind of a hardware and then a software type Mm. thing. And, And that was something I could, get on board with to some degree, you know, they would, they would say that like male and female refer to your biological sex, but that man and woman refer to maybe these social roles and expectations or uh, more, more to do with your identity. And that was a, you know, a little strange, but you know, we have these two separate words that we can use male and man and female and woman. And sure, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and grant that to, to the people if that makes them feel better or something. Mm -hmm. And then it was 
maybe three years ago when I went online and I just sort of noticed there was a shift in the way a lot of my friends, and these were like PhD students in anthropology departments and in even my own department, uh, which was evolution and ecology. And they were sharing these articles that were talking about how they, there's there are five different sexes or sometimes even eight sexes, or they would share articles that said just sex is a spectrum. There isn't even just male and female, but maybe there's like an infinite number of them or none at all. It's just, you know, it's just a complete, uh, you know, we can only talk about sort of maleness and femaleness, uh, but not male and female as any like discrete category. And that's just when I, I thought things just really flew off the rails. And then when I tried to push back at all and just sort of get to the factual basis of it and say like, well, no, these are real categories and they're like, you can't really change them and it's different than identity. Uh, I was getting a pushback, but it wasn't like a factual pushback. It was mm -hmm. just like a, you're a horrible human being. It would just, people would be piling on me and I just stopped touching it because I was trying to get jobs in academia and, uh, and all that stuff. And then, you know, there's a reputational aspect to academia and, and if you don't get, you know, if you, if you have, don't have a squeaky clean publication record and social record, then it's just going to be really hard for you to get a job. So I was quiet for quite some time uh, until um, I decided to sort of uh, release all the bottled up <laughs> angst I had <laughs> over the debate and wrote some articles that got pretty popular. Um, but that was that's sort of how I came to it. So th there's I think the the debate around gender is one of the most insane ones and the most confusing to a lot of people, because a lot of people think they know what they're talking about when they say gender. Mm -hmm. So some people refer to it as like a deep sense of how uh, you, the relation of your mind to your body, like do you a, a deep sense of being male or female. Then there's sort of this more like radical feminist definition that has to do with the way society sort of imposes gendered norms and expectations based on your perceived sex. Then there's like the Tumblr list of all the, you know, a hundred or a thousand gender identities that just kind of reflects personalities in some weird sense. So no one really is on the same footing. We're sort of just volleying words at each other, but we're not really connecting on, on the actual uh, concept. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm trying to do is, is address the concepts and, and see where we're going wrong and then keep that wall between biological sex and gender identity as, as, as strong as possible. Cause there's a lot of attempts to sort of blur that distinction or just obliterate the distinction altogether. Yeah. So I think what's confusing for a lot of, I'm going to say like regular people, right, that maybe don't have a background um, in research or maybe they didn't go to college or maybe they're just not proficient in sex and gender. Um, they haven't spent a lot of time there because they're busy, whatever the reason is. Can you, I guess I, this might be a hard question, but can you explain how to properly look at like like statistics or um or data because i find that you can manipulate it to kind of prove whatever argument you want so when it comes to sex for example um i have had deborah dr deborah so on a couple of times and she does like a really really great job in her book in describing all of these categories but it's really hard for me personally to ret retain so if i go into a conversation i would have to refer to it um to find I guess, like my argument or like the basis of why I think these things. So if you can take research that says there's only two sexes, but then I've also heard that people are saying there's a research that shows that there's multiple sexes because of variants. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So th there's a lot of confusion out there. Like you'll get some arguments that'll say, 
you know, there's five sexes or six because they'll look at just your sex chromosomes and they're like, well, we have XX and XY. And that's what people are taught in school is referring to males and females. But then they'll, you know, point out there's like people with Klinefelter syndrome or Turner syndrome. And there's they have sort of these variations of their sex chromosomes. You can be XXY or XYY or X and have no other accompanying XX chromosome. Um, but I guess the, the fundamental flaw in a lot of these definitions, and you'll also see definitions like hormonal definitions saying, you know, the level of testosterone is maybe how we can define someone's sex, or they'll try to define sex based on what are called like secondary sex characteristics, like how your body sort of looks in terms of your overall body shape, uh, if you have breasts or not, if, you know, you're uh, fast deposited over your body, if you have facial hair. They'll try to use all these like sex related characteristics Mm -hmm. and they'll try to say that that is what biological sex is fundamentally or that, you know, there's no real good way that all these things kind of interact in a complex way. And so we can't really make any decisive uh, conclusion on anyone's sex. It's just sort of we can just sort of pick and choose all these different categories and then amalgamate them. And that's sort of where what your sex is in some weird way. Um, What they're failing to to really get at is the fact that your biological sex, while it's influenced by, you know, your chromosomes, these things guide the development of bodies. When we're talking about what somebody's sex is, uh, we're talking about basically the, the the type of reproductive anatomy that they have that is organized around the production of either large or small gametes or sex cells like sperm Mm -hmm. and eggs. Okay. So this is true, not just in humans, this is true like across the animal kingdom. Um, you know, we can't just define sex by your chromosomes because there's plenty of animals that have sexes, males and females, that don't have like a chromosomal determined sexes. So for instance, many reptiles, they determine their sex based on the temperature that they're incubated at. Um, and another, in some birds, you know, the, the male, the females are the hetero uh chromatic sex, meaning they have like the two different chromosomes that determine their sex. Um, But those are sort of developmental ideas. Those are mechanisms that produce sexes. But fundamentally, we're looking at your reproductive anatomy that's constructed around the production of gametes. This is true in humans and reptiles and plants, many amphibians. Um, And this is sort of how, how nature has, has, has evolved basically to have these, this, these sexual reproducing species um, there's a little more confusion when you actually sort of want to get under, understand the sex of a single individual. Um, I like to sort of look at it at two levels. We can talk about what biological sex is in sort of a conceptual way when we're looking at a population. And that's more to do with, you know, the males are the ones that produce sperm. The females are the one that produce ova. Um, but when we're actually looking at an individual and saying like, what is your sex? Mm-hmm. It's going to be a little more complicated than that because, you know, for instance, males don't even produce sperm until they go through puberty. So if they're not producing sperm when they're in adolescence or a baby, you know, you'll get the activists say like, well, aren't they not a male then? And so this is sort of why we have to look at just the anatomy that's sort of built around. the Like the ability to. Uh, yeah, the, the ability to whether or not you ever are able to actually produce them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can some people grow up and they have, you know, a genetic uh um, abnormality or something that makes it so they're they're sterile or they don't produce eggs or they're born without a without ovaries or you know they um, a lot of the internal re- reproductive anatomy is non-existent or or um, sort of compromised in some way. Mm-hmm. So 
yeah, we're ultimately looking at sex as sort of a phenotype of the outcome of development rather than like the mechanisms that usually guide this process. So I hope that's, that's sort of clear. Um, maybe we can go into it more if you, if you need to. No, I think, I think that's pretty clear. So when it comes to the argument, um, I wish I remembered the the percentage. It was really, really small, but there, uh, Deborah outlined it in her book as well. She was saying that there's a small percentage of people that can actually produce both gametes. Uh, maybe I'm recalling that incorrectly. Um, are you familiar with that? So to my knowledge, there's never been an instance of a human that can actually produce both gametes. There's like one paper, I think from the 50s, that saw that there might have been like an ovulation event in some guy's, like one of his testicles that had ovarian tissue or something. Okay. But they weren't, he wasn't functional. He was a functional uh, male. He was a fertile male. And there may have been sort of in a partial ovary that he had an ovulation event. But this could not have resulted in actual, uh, you know, having a pregnancy or anything. He didn't have the rest of the anatomy for that. Um, you can get individuals that are intersex and they're sort of, um, sort of, it's, it's defined as being sexually ambiguous in some way or having a mismatch between sort of your internal reproductive anatomy and the way you appear on the, on the outside. Mm -hmm. But this is like a super small percentage of the population. We're talking one out of every 5,000 individuals is born where the doctors are, you know, unsure what Mm -hmm. the individual sex is. And this doesn't really... Uh, call into question the whole idea of there being two sexes because, um, you know, sex is fundamentally defined by the propensity to produce certain types of gametes. And there's only two gametes. There's only sperm and ova. So you can talk about there being an intersex individual where they might have sort of an intermediate phenotype, Mm. but that doesn't mean that they're like a third sex because there's not like a third gamete for them to produce. Okay. Uh, so that's sort of the way I look at it. I, I use an analogy sometimes of like flipping a coin where we can say that, um, you know, coin faces, they don't come in mixtures. It's either heads or tails. But there have been studies with sort of like flipping a, a nickel where one out of every, I think, 6,000 flips it'll land on its edge, which is pretty close to the rate of, of intersex individuals. But just because you might have like an edge result doesn't mean that heads and tails now exist on a spectrum or that, you know, the heads and tails doesn't exist or something. It doesn't, like, it doesn't destroy those categories. It just means that maybe there are some individuals that are sort of intermediate. And that's completely fine because biology can be complex. Mm-hmm. But this doesn't, doesn't mean that, you know, we remove the other categories because uh, there might be sort of a, uh, some instances where the sex might not be entirely clear. Mm-hmm. So when you, were, when you were going to school... Um, did you plan on getting into like the sex and gender discussion or did, how did you, cause I was listening to something that was saying you thought you were going to end up in fitness. And I'm like, we are, that would, that's so, that would have been so un- uncontroversial. Like that would have been a, probably a lot easier. So how did you end up yeah. in this discussion? It's bizarre. I would have, if you told me like three <laughs> years ago, this is what I would have been doing. Uh-huh. I would have just, I don't even know. I couldn't have fathomed it. Um, I mean, I, my PhD is in evolutionary biology and I studied mainly animal behavior, social behavior of like social insects and, and spider colonies. So that's pretty far away from what I'm doing now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, as, as I sort of mentioned a little earlier, it was when I just saw people that were being completely factually incorrect about what biological sex was, 
and even though I, I didn't I didn't study sex development in any like super rigorous uh, rigorous way during my PhD, mm-hmm. um, you know, sex is a big factor in people studying animal behavior because you know there's so much that is a consequence that lies downstream from the fact that some individuals have large gametes that are sort of uh, have a high a high amount of resources they need to invest in these, or if they're carrying offspring, this has this tremendous implications for the behavior of individuals. You get sexual dimorphism, and you can predict all kinds of stuff about the way their their species interacts and male male conflict and all these things. So it's, it's an important pillar of animal behavior, understanding that the the sort of um, downstream effects of biological sex. Um, and I'd, I'd sort of always been fond of the the genre of sort of debunking things Mm -hmm. i used to have a blog uh back in like the the late 2000s early 2010s where i would sort of take on a lot of like the young earth creationist and intelligent design arguments Mm. Um, i just really liked sort of debunking these people who i thought were just sort of uh ideologically messing up the biology for ideological purposes and that's exactly what I, I feel like a lot of the the gender ideology trans movement is sort of doing in the name of, of social justice. Whereas before it was easy to like combat against the the creationists and intelligent design people because they really didn't have like a foothold in, in academia. So I could just, you know, blast their arguments and blow them out of the water. And it was nothing but, you know, pats on your back from your my colleagues. Mm-hmm. But then as soon as I start saying like, you know, what are you guys talking about with, you know, they're not being real, like sexes aren't real and maybe there's five sexes or an infinite number, Mm -hmm. then it was completely opposite because of the sort of political breakdown of departments where now I was, I was just like this evil person and students felt unsafe (laughs) when I would write about this stuff. So I left academia because there was a whole, whole thing of people trying to to cancel me and sending emails to departments um, about why I was a terrible person and people posting on like uh, job boards that I was a, a transphobe and a race scientist or something, even though I don't talk about race like at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I left academia and I'm, I'm really into fitness. And so I thought I would just be like an online fitness coach. I really had no major plan B other than I wanted to be in control of my own, my own future uh, and not be, not be in the hands of sort of hiring committees and, and tenure committees in academia. And then I got, I got extremely lucky that Claire over at Colette, uh, they had an opening and they ended up giving me a job as their managing editor. So that's what I've been doing since. And it's been amazing. So I can I can work from anywhere and I can speak 100% freely, which is amazingly uh, freeing. And I, I, it's hard to put a price on that. So yeah, that's uh, a huge gift. Great. I don't know. I don't know what I would do if I was in a situation like most people where you do have bosses or a board to answer to and then you can't really be your authentic self and then maybe you see yourself wanting to speak out about important topics because you start to see them affect your family or your business and then not being able to. That would be a really, really tough position to be in. So I think it all worked out for the best in your case. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's what I thought I could do. I mean, I, I ended up wanting to be in academia. Um, you know, since I was I was pretty young, I wanted to be a scientist because I always viewed academia as a place where that's where the hard debates were taking place. That's where I could count on my colleagues to, you know, just be looking at the facts and, you know, understanding that if I'm, if I'm presenting an argument, they're not just going to try to take me out on a personal level. And as I just got closer and closer to actually 
you know, getting a professor job and applying. My, my whole idea of what academia is has completely morphed, you know, and I think it's not entirely that I was wrong earlier. I just think in the time where I went to school, in the 10 years or 12 years, actually, between starting undergrad and finishing my, my postdoc, uh, it's really just morphed quite a lot. So it's the whole environment's uh, changed quite a bit. So it's no longer sort of that that thing that I that I thought it was when I started. Yeah, there's definitely not a lot of diversity when it comes to, I guess, like the way that um, people view the world or their politics or their ideologies. It does seem to skew very hard left. What's interesting, um, so when I was going, when I was in high school, I remember for some reason, there, at least in my community, it was a really big deal that they weren't teaching uh, creation in science classes. Like there, I don't know if it was just like locally because I was in like a small town in upstate New York, but a bunch of parents got together and they were very upset. And they're like, I can't believe our tax dollars are going here and we're not being represented. And everyone just kind of laughed. Like, this has to be a joke. If that's what you want, maybe go to like a, a religious school and, and do that. Um, but we're not going to teach that because there's it's kind of irrefutable at this point that that's just not how things turned out. And then you were mm-hmm. kind of comparing the sex deniers now to the um, evolutionary deniers back then, but there wasn't any pushback, right? Like it was all like, here's the irrefutable evidence and then we're just going to stick with this. And now it's, I wonder why we're ignoring the evidence. Like, is there like a, a collective agenda possibly? Do these people, or is their compassion maybe blinding them? And that's what it is. Like it's, at the cost of uh, saving hurt feelings that we're just going to pretend that these things aren't real. Um, That's where my mind starts spinning because I just don't understand denying what the data says now. And right. like, is it possible that a hundred years from now we figure something else out? I'm sure there's a small percentage, but as it stands now, this is what the truth is. Yeah. I mean, that's where my mind was spinning as well. That got me sort of into this whole thing. Uh, I, I really do think it's all coming down to, to politics, really, in the end. It's just this tribal thinking um, where I, I have seen the sort of gender ideology, sex spectrum stuff, just like destroy people's brains. It just melts their brains for some reason, because they have these 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 ideas that they, they're, they're super caring people. They were completely for gay rights. Mm-hmm. And now by this, these same organizations that were championing you know, gay marriage and gay rights, which I was fully 100% behind every step of the way. These same organizations that have all this clout and, you know, um, history of being reliable on these issues, they've now just started pumping all this money because they've won this issue into the the whole trans debate, the gender ideology. And I just don't think, I think there's some like social policing going on where they just, I mean, I felt it myself. I mean, I, a second I, I, sort of stepped out of line. I was just, you know, piled on by mm-hmm. so many people who were lifelong friends up until then. Um, and so there's a, a, a social aspect of, of sort of whipping people in line to conform. There's also just a political tribalism going on, um, which is sort of higher than it's maybe ever been in the, well, you know, we're not, we had a civil war, so maybe not quite as high as it used to be. Um, but yeah, in our it's, lifetime, it's just probably. been, yeah, maybe yeah, in our lifetime for sure. But it's just been really mind-boggling to see how 
people can't make the, this clear distinction between sex and gender now. Because to me, this is, I mean, I've described it. This is the name of my Substack. It's called Reality's Last Stand. Because I, I really feel like this is like the low-hanging fruit. Like, this is the easy question. It is male and female, are they real categories? Like, a child knows that these are different categories. They can mm -hmm. identify them. And for people just to say that these things aren't real, and their arguments are just so horrible. It's just, I don't know how they can't see the flaws <laughs> in their reasoning. But if we can't get this one right, like this is just like the easiest question, um, then where do you go from there? Like what other thing can be completely distorted? And, you know, how can we have society trust what scientists say on like much more complex things like climate change or something mm -hmm. where, you know, it's, it's nothing that an ordinary person can observe. And it has sort of a, a relation, you know, it's, it has a, a political implications and so, I mean, if people are seeing politicians just sort of waffle on, you know, does male and female exist? How can we possibly trust people when they're just making policy decisions on much more complex things that uh, that have sort of any political implication whatsoever? So that that's just what I'm extremely concerned about is just sort of this this distrust, this deterioration of a lot of the institutions that we really need to be able to trust mm -hmm. to like function as a society. So, well, we've um, seen that yeah, a, that, a that's ton what, that's in 2020. And, oh, I mean, I've never been like, I'm not like a science denier or skeptic, but I've never been more skeptical of any result I see that has any relation to politics whatsoever. I'm just like, I don't know what to believe. Like, mm -hmm. sorry. <laughs> and I'm yeah. a scientist. Like I'm someone who should have a better grip on it than most people. And if, if I'm, completely clueless on some things and have zero confidence. Like how does the average person have any confidence whatsoever? It's, uh, None. You just have to scary. like do your, do <laughs> your own research about. and like hope that you're making the right decision or coming to the right conclusion on your own. And then you also have to ask the question yeah. when you're looking at, I don't know, when you were giving that explanation where my mind went was if you're looking at these organizations that solely rely on um, people needing help, of any sort, it's almost like we've done such great work when it comes to like the gay rights movement that it's like, well, what else can we, what else, what else, what's another issue we can, we can tackle. And I mean, it's not to say that there's still not people that maybe disagree with, you know, equal rights and then, and gay people being able to get married or adopt or whatever. But I feel like that's on the fringes. Like, I don't remember the last time I met someone that was like, you know, they sh only straight people should be able to get married. Like, I feel like we've done like a lot of positive change there. So it's almost like because that's almost complete or almost to like this really healthy place. And maybe we need to find something else and dig that up. Um, you had a really I was catching up with your um, like your little news articles that I get in my emails. Um, and I. Those? That's good. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, there was some really interesting and like heartbreaking ones when it came to uh, children transitioning. And um, I think, what was it called? I wrote it down. Um, it was the Sons Become Daughters article that you linked. And it was just a lot of like personal stories from like the parents' perspective of kind of what was happening. And it was pretty 
mind blowing to me how reckless like these quote unquote professionals were being with with their patients yeah. with like the minor patient and i've seen so many people that are saying anything but affirmative care is going to cause like a suicide rate which it has been debunked like that's not true and that's also very reckless to say to a parent who doesn't know what the heck is happening um I thought it was great because not a lot of people are covering it from that angle. It's like the parents not allowed to do anything but just agree with the child transitioning. And for me, I don't understand how a child can consent. Like that's like my biggest hiccup is we we obviously say you have to be 18 to consent to to sex, right? Or to smoking cigarettes or like there's like this age barrier for a lot of important decisions. So how can we say a 12-year-old can go get a double mastectomy and start taking testosterone, but they're not allowed to say who they have sex with. To me, the sex thing is way less detrimental to their future than than the, you know, precursor. Um, so I thought that was like a yeah, really it's, spicy it's, article. Yeah, it's, it's a really great series. There's a couple more of those coming out too. I think there's, it was a four-part series. Now I think it's going to be a six-part series. Um, one might be coming out today, like the part four, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's super concerning. So I, I initially got into the debate just on the factual matter of just like, these people are wrong about what biological sex is. And, you know, just like, I'm just going to correct it with a few facts. <laughs> and then <laughs> after I started getting into it more, you know, you, you come to realize that when you're denying such like a fundamental aspect of humanity as a species, you know, you don't just like get away with that. <laughs> like there's a way that reality will like call in its debts at some point. And it's, you know, there's, you you can't just, it's, there's not a free lunch. You can't just deny this aspect without having the, the side effects just pop up all around society. Um, and one of the, the biggest issues I have is sort of the way that sort of gender is being defined according to gender ideology, which is, really at its basis, it is um, rooted in sort of sex-related stereotypes of masculinity and femininity. Mm -hmm. um, and then this is really causing a lot of confusion in kids, especially when you're saying that male and female are now like identities rather than sexes. And so I think a lot of kids now are sort of looking at themselves, they're doing a self-assessment of sort of their personality and their, their, uh, their mannerisms and behaviors and preferences in relation to their male and female, you know, friends around them. And when they realize that they're stere they're more maybe stereotypically like the other sex or maybe gender non-conforming, the ideology says that that's like an indication that, you know, if you're a male, that maybe you're actually, maybe you're a woman or you're, mm -hmm. you know, if you're a girl, you're maybe you're actually a boy. And then, this is being sort of used to then, you know, I, I watched some videos today. These are videos that are given to children in classes. And it just talked about, you know, if, if this is how you feel, then talk to an endocrinologist and maybe they can prescribe you puberty blockers as oh. a pause button so you can have more time to think about, you know, your, your gender. But what people don't tell you is that like almost 100% of kids that go on puberty blockers always transition into cross-sex hormones and then surgeries and stuff. So it's, and there's also no like long-term studies on puberty blockers uh, for the the time window where people are taking it like to block puberty. Mm -hmm. So it's, I, I just think it's going to be a, a gigantic medical scandal because I've, 
I've really done a lot of the research and looked at, you know, what's behind puberty blockers, what are the different types of therapies that we're having, the affirmative care versus other things like watchful waiting um, and the outcomes with these. And it's really kind of shocking how bad the research is on the outcomes for the kids uh, who are getting affirmative care. And you can just see how activists, basically, (laughs) activist scientists, but activists first, (laughs) for sure, uh, are just sort of uh, pushing their agenda through and and really just trying to, to smoke out anyone who disagrees with them in the field. I mean, I'm on several Slack channels with you know, groups of, of so many physicians and therapists who are just constantly like when a new article comes out by, you know, Jack Turbin, he's a, like a physician who's really spearheading a lot of this, uh, you know, affirmative care stuff. And he just distorts everything so, so thoroughly. And so it's just constantly, and he happens to just be like extremely prolific in what he publishes. And so it's just this constant battle to, okay, we've got to respond to this. And now the journals don't even want to touch it because, you know, it's, they don't want to get canceled. So it's just, it's wild. I would have, it's hard to even describe behind the scenes how how crazy the whole process is. Uh, And it really would undermine your confidence in in the medical field and how it comes to its conclusions. Oh, 100%. But then you have to realize that all of the professionals and the researchers and the scientists are all people at the end of the day, Um, which means that, you know, they're, they're fallible. What, is really cool. Um, it actually was uh, sparking some controversy the other day on Twitter. Is North Carolina recently passed a bill? I think it was passed or might have been proposed, um, and maybe not passed yet. But it was if any kid is in school and starts like showing signs of um, like switching their name, for example, or going by a different gender or whatever it is that the parent has to be notified. And a lot of people were like, this is so dangerous. We can't have this, you know, North Carolina so backwards and kind of an uproar. And I was, I was thinking, how is anything but that acceptable? Because if I'm trusting you to watch my child for that many hours a day, five days a week, I think that I have a right to know if anything like that is happening because then I have to be able to have that conversation at home. Like I shouldn't be left in the dark as the parent as to if they're trying to, you know, identify as anything else, because obviously whether they actually have um, gender dysphoria or maybe it's something else happening, I can't give them the proper care if I don't know what's going on. So it, it was kind of alarming to me that we were saying the parents didn't have a right to that information or that was like the backlash. Obviously North Carolina disagrees with that. Um, I don't know if you saw that happening. I think it was like last week, maybe. Yeah, it's it's wild how the tendency to sort of wanting to distance you from your parents and how everything is sort of underground. And there's a lot of internet forums where people will tell you like, you know, what to tell your parents in order to get puberty blockers. And here's what you have to do. Oh, like, say wow. you're going to kill yourself. I mean, there's all these bizarre uh, communities and the ways that they just sort of try to to vilify and distance you from those around you. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite cultish in a very literal sense. Um, and you, you'll note in some of the articles for the, when sons become daughters, this was like a very similar thing that happened. You'd have the boys that would go to their school and the parents were unaware that they were, are being called the opposite sex. They have a new name. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, to some degree, you know, people might not think it's, it's all that concerning, but when you realize what lies further down that path, 
you know, if they're just confused about their gender because they're gender nonconforming and, you know, they're a tomboy or, you know, whatever, an effeminate male, um, they shouldn't be then put down this path where, you know, puberty blockers lie or, uh, you know, cross-sex hormones, which are going to result in permanent lifelong sterility and, you know, surgeries that are irreversible. And, you know, if, if you're a, if you're a young girl and you're, you're taking testosterone, these are irreversible things. Your voice will change permanently. Uh, if you're on it long enough, you'll have to get a hysterectomy because your, your reproductive organs just sort of start to, to deteriorate on the inside. Um, and you're going to get facial hair growth. I mean, these are, these are things that are completely irreversible and, you know, mm-hmm. the, the path starts with the sort of social affirming process uh, where you just accept them as, as they say they are. And you can't investigate any sort of underlying causes to their dysphoria um, because that's considered conversion therapy in some places. I know in Canada, that's, I think that's currently the case. It's a and bunch so of states here everything, too, I believe. Yeah. I'm not sure if it was, it might be a state by state thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like everything is just pushing them in one direction. And that direction is your trans puberty blockers, cross-sex hormone surgery. Um, it's a really dangerous slippery slope that, you know, it was usually a fallacy, but in this case, you know, you do see this thousands percent uptick in the number of kids that are presenting to, to clinics, mm-hmm. um, following a whole different sort of trajectory that we'd see with normal, uh, kids claiming to be trans, which usually starts at a very, very young age and it's persistent and consistent. Um, we're getting kids that are just in their social groups, having no previous history of gender nonconformity or anything, just suddenly claiming that they're the opposite sex and then they're just all in and they want the cross-sex hormones and everything. So yeah, it's it's a interesting phenomenon. And you know, the last thing we should be doing is just barreling ahead, you know, without without proper um safety checks to make sure that the the, the kids are getting the care that they actually uh deserve. For sure, because as a responsible, loving parent, you're going to want to make sure that your kid feels comfortable in their body and I guess like talk these things out, not just accept it as, as face value. I mean, I know it's not like a great um, side-by-side comparison, but a lot of girls go through or maybe even have like body dysmorphia, right? Like, and I'm sure it's probably gone up since social media. So there was a time in my life where, I mean, I had an eating disorder, I was like very unhappy with how I looked. I couldn't be thin enough. And I was like working out in excess. Um, So to just say simply because I was uncomfortable with my body that I had to make like a physical, like an external change, I think is a little bit short-sighted when you compare the two. And it's not to take away like that some people are actually trans. Like we know that that exists. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the, like you said, the uptick that we're seeing. Um, like the social contagion that's kind of happening. So like for me, the proper parenting would have been to figure out what was going on with me, what my anxiety or my discomfort and fix that internally, not externally. Like again, I could have worked out until I withered away to nothing. That's not the solution. So it's being able to, I guess, be comfortable in your body. And that starts with a conversation. It's not necessarily conversion. Um, So given your, your background with evolutionary biology can like what's your take on that social contagion aspect of um 
of people now like self-identifying as I guess it's specifically with with young girls to like identifying as male. Yeah, I mean it's it's both males and females, but the the ratio has flipped. It used to be mostly males that would uh, claim to have gender dysphoria or exhibit signs of gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a huge uptick in in both males and females generally, mm-hmm. uh, but the the prevalence has sort of flipped. Um, where it's it's now almost I mean it's it's majority um, female young girls who are who are claiming to to identify as as male now, uh, but I mean the, the whole when sons become daughters thing we're doing in Quillette is actually addressing sort of a much overlooked aspect, and that is the males that are also you know having that sort of rapid onset gender dysphoria um, sort of ideology, mm. which is concerning because you know Abigail Schreier she does amazing work in her book Irreversible Damage is fantastic um it it does focus on on young girls and i think you know that's that's a proper thing to focus on but i mean there are it's not just young girls is happening in and so um it's good that we're seeing sort of every every everyone getting addressed right now mm-hmm. uh social contagion is something that is happens all the time i mean we'll talk to um, I'll, I'll talk to, you know, these trans rights activists and they'll say, you know, this can't be a social contagion because who would want to identify in something that, you know, an oppressed category and things, but there's documented evidence of social contagion happening with things like suicide. Like what could oh, be more God, yeah. anti-evolutionary or beneficial to you than, than killing yourself? Mm-hmm. And so like this, it's not something that's merely related to things that, you know, it's not like a, a fad of beneficial things. I mean, these can be, um, you know, they, they can be things that are have that are harmful to yourself. Uh, it can be things that signal sort of social inclusivity or, you know, I always think if we seem to be in a time now where we have such a, such a heaping a lot of praise on sort of people for claiming to be victims and things. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not, not a really big surprise that you will see people that are sort of identifying into categories that are um, widely viewed as, as oppressed. So, um, I think we need to talk about social contagion more. This is sort of Lisa Littman's work. She's the one who did, uh, who first had the study on rapid onset gender dysphoria. Um, I know she's doing more follow-up studies, but, you know, the, a lot of the activists claims that, you know, she only talked to parents and she didn't actually interview the, the kids themselves. And so she tried to do follow-up study and had it you know, based on the kids and these, uh, these um, surveys. And then all the activists just bombarded her poll and ruined her study so they they claim that they want better data, but then they but then just they ruined it. the study they try to do. So she has to go this other route where she has to, you know, gather the data much more covertly and not have it just be this big public thing. So uh, yeah, it's it's something we need to study. And me claiming it was a social contagion, or even just offering it up as a possibility, is what led to like a lot of people who tried to cancel me like uh, about a year ago. Uh, you know, calling departments ahead of time telling them I'm such a horrible person um, because they said I was, you know, comparing trans people to viruses or something like that, where, you know, it's the field of social contagion is, is not controversial. It's something that is documented widely with a wide range of phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So it's just something they don't like to hear because their, their narrative is that it's, it's not social contagion. It's just greater societal acceptance. That's the only reason that people are kind of coming out in droves. Um, but it's weird that you only see people coming out who are like of this demographic, like Gen Z and some millennials. You don't get like these 
50 year olds that are coming out as trans now that they, the environment's better, which you would probably expect. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also have like this increase in, in suicide rates too, in, in general. So, which, which seems to be not completely uh, interpretable with this greater acceptance if we still see, um, mm-hmm. you know, people uh, committing suicide at such high rates. Yeah. So, so when so it yeah, comes to, to big, sorry mess. to cut you off, go ahead. Oh no, I'm done. It's, it's a mess. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. So when it comes to social contagion, like a male adaptive contagion, like suicide, have you done any research with that? Because to me, I mean, it's horrific, but it's also, it's like shockingly fascinating. Like why, how does that, there was a state, I think it was Arizona, was it that during the lockdowns, they saw like a huge uptick. It was like one community got just absolutely rocked um, with their kids, just all of them killing themselves. So it was like just boom, 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 boom. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't really hear about it a lot about, about it on the news, but I was listening to a podcast that was mentioning it. And it's so, I just don't understand how by one person doing it, it kind of like sparks that, I guess, need or possibility in someone else. And then it just keeps on going. I don't know if you can explain maybe why that happened or like happens yeah. psychologically or biologically. You know, unfortunately I'm not too familiar with that. I know someone who's really good on that, who studies that specifically is uh, Nicholas Christakis. He he's done a lot of work on social contagion and he right, was even yeah. talking uh, on Twitter about how this isn't even the first time that like gender dysphoria has been uh, a social contagion. So that's actually something I, I would love to chat with him about that because I, I wasn't aware of like a previous uh, iteration of the whole gender dysphoria contagion um, that I think he said took place in the 90s or something, which would be fascinating. Mm-hmm. So he's someone that you should get on for that because he's just an amazingly fascinating person. Super I just wrote that down. Yeah, I'm going to have to because to me, that's just so fascinating. I think um, it might have been Deborah that was explaining like her theory on it. So she was... And I, I hope it was Deborah, not someone else. Um, but th- she was saying that is specifically with women or like young girls, it spreads a little bit faster, whether it's like a gender dysphoria issue or um, gender di- identity issue or whether it was a body dysmorphic issue, uh, eating eating disorders, all of that, just because girls tend to talk more about what's going ro- wrong with them. And then we just kind of start to see, um, I don't know, like whole friend groups start to I guess, like suffer those consequences. Um, And then she was saying that it was kind of like the new, like the new punk rock. So being non-binary is like the new goth or the new punk rock. So it's just like a way to express like your rebellion against the culture, which I thought was really interesting because I don't think anyone else has kind of given that um, analogy. And to me, it makes sense. Like we all go through, or most of us go through that rebellious stage where like, you know, screw you, mom, you don't understand and, you know, screw the government and whatever. Like you just go through that angry like phase, um, which is fine. And if it's, if it is a phase for some people, I think it wouldn't be an issue if we weren't medically interve- intervening. Um, but that's where we start to get the hang up. And then you have the misinformation that it's not permanent and that you can reverse it. And from all of the professionals I've talked to or read about, they say quite the opposite. Yeah. It's, it's that intermingling with the whole medical uh, aspect that's the most concerning. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could totally see, you know, those, the emo kids who previously just, you know, were gauging their ears and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. this sort of, that sort of behavior 
is now like, I mean, if you look at a lot of the people who claim to be sort of non-binary, uh, I, you know, this is just my idea. These seem to be like, yeah, I think a lot of the kids who used to be emo would have probably, if they were growing up right now, would probably be the non-binary kids. But instead of gauging their ears, you know, they're just sort of dressing androgynously and and, and trying to get hormones or puberty blockers and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did hear, and I can't remember who this was. It might have been Abigail Schreier who talked about um, why there might be the uptick in, in girls specifically. And it's because of just sort of this this super emphasis on the way that they sort of empathize with their friends, where if they have a friend who's going through something, it's not so much um, to just sort of, you know, sympathize with them, be like, oh, you know, sorry you're going through it. But they sort of take on the pain of their friends in a way, in a, in a much personal sense, and they sort of take it on themselves uh, to to be part of that pain and participate in it with their friends in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've, I've, I haven't grown up a, a female, so I don't really know that type of dynamic, but uh, it seems, it seems like an interesting uh, potential explanation for sort of why social contagion is, is seems to be more prevalent in, in females generally mm. uh, for things like eating disorders is a, is a big area of social contagion that doesn't spread uh, in males nearly as, as much. Yeah, I heard that when they're um, like kind of admitted into facilities that they're not allowed to like bunk together because of that. Um, I don't I don't know where yeah. I heard that, but I heard, yeah, because if you put them together, then they kind of start competing for who can lose the most weight. And then it just it's obviously not good yeah. when you're trying to rehabilitate. And, and that's something what Lisa Lippman's work. She looked at the groups of friends they'd have. And, you know, if they had a lot of trans friends, then you know, their, their friends were more likely to come out as trans, uh, sort of this, you know, it's, it's sort of a, I don't know if I would say it's a competition, but it's definitely a sort of a social group signaling, being part of the group, everyone's doing it type of thing. And man, you just get hammered if you just even bring that up as a possible explanation, even though it's just like so plausible, it's, Mm -hmm. it's needs to be looked at. Yeah. And you would think that if you had everyone's best interest at heart, you would want that number to be as small as possible. Like the people that were truly dysphoric, small as possible as possible, because that's such a hard road. Um, you have to do all of these things to your body. Uh, I had Buck on and he was saying, uh, I think he was the first person to do like a full um, change and no one really knew what was going to happen. And he actually almost died because um I forgot something with like the hormone therapy and his like, cervix literally was like shriveling up and was yeah, going to kill him before they knew what like prolonged testosterone would do on sort of your, your, your cervix. And, and it, 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 you know, literally it will de- deteriorate it. And so it can become, you know, you can, I think go into like sepsis, if it just like rots away. Mm-hmm, uh, exactly. Get it addressed soon enough. So yeah. And he's I, like, I if I went to clubhouse with Buck the other day and he's amazing. I, <laughs> I love, love Buck. So Yeah, I love Buck. (laughs) But he's like, if I had gone to the hospital and insisted that I was a man, not a trans man, and, you know, and denied that I was a biological female, I would have died. Like, we, this is like, this is a place, we can't care so much about how we identify when it comes to medicine because this is do or die territory. It doesn't matter. Science doesn't care about your pronouns. Science doesn't care about your identity. Um, And I think it was also in one of your newsletters, 
you were saying that CVS took off sex on um, like their COVID forms and it's now just gender identity. And I was curious, like, A, does that matter? Does it matter on either end for like something like a vaccine or something like COVID? You know, it's probably less important for something like COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though we do, there is like a sex difference. You know, males seem to be more susceptible to, to COVID, I think. I didn't know that. I don't know the exact stats. I think it's like 50% more likely oh, to, wow. to die of COVID. Um, and so, you know, with, with respect to the vaccine, it might not be, you know, that important, but maybe we'll need to know, you know, if, if there's a sex difference in side effects and things like that. Um, it's important to know if there's actually a sex difference. And you might say like, well, it's just so few people that are going to actually be, you know, males that are going to put down female or something. But mm-hmm. it's still data that's you're just adding noise to the data and that's just not something we should do just knowingly make the data messier Mm -hmm. uh, even if it's just a few people so in some contexts it might not have really bad consequences but in others i mean it it definitely could have you know like in buck's case i mean he's his sex on his birth certificate really matters (laughs) to, Mm -hmm. to tell doctors um there's you know different ways that uh, things like heart attacks manifest themselves in males or females with the symptoms. And so, you know, if you're, if you're telling the doctor, these are your symptoms, you know, if it's, if they don't know your sex or they're wrong about your sex, that could lead to a, a wrong diagnosis. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, we just need to be frank about, you know, someone's sex in certain contexts. I mean, I'm always saying that I'm open to calling people by their preferred pronouns Mm -hmm. in sort of a social situation. And, you know, it's out of respect for them as an individual and I don't want to increase their dysphoria. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty accommodating, but it's just when it comes to certain areas in society where we need to actually be honest about your sex, like in sports and what prison you're going to go to and medical records and things like that, then it's, I mean, we need to be, we need to be like adults in the room and just be like, here's, I'm sorry. I mean, I know you're how you identify, but, this is your actual sex and this is important and here's why. Um, and that shouldn't be a controversial thing to, mm-hmm. to, to say, but uh, yeah, they, they, a lot of people just want them to be treated as the sex they claim to be in all contexts, even to the case where I mean, you get some, some people, and this is, this is a very small minority, but there's cases of trans women wanting to get, you know, like going in for like a pap smear or something where it's just like, why are you even, you don't have a cervix. Like there's nothing for them to, to smear. Right. <laughs> like you, like Buck, he said on the clubhouse, like he wouldn't go in for a prostate exam, even though some trans men claim to, uh, or sorry, trans women, sorry, no, trans men <laughs> claim to want, be going in for these exams. It, completely pointless. It's just medical theater at that point, just mm-hmm. to reinforce your identity or something. Like this is a waste of time and, and money and resources. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the prison thing is fascinating as well. And, I think what's really curious is Buck also brought up a good point with this is we're seeing a lot of biological men that are, you know, self-identifying to switch over to the women's prison, which should be so obvious that this is a terrible idea. Um, but for some reason, we're like, no, we want to be compassionate and inclusive. So let's let them loosen there. And Buck was like, is anyone thinking about me? <laughs> is anyone thinking about trans men? Because if that's the case, do we have to put trans men in male prisons? Because that's also a terrible idea. He's like, I would be killed. I'd be killed because he, you know, he saws mm-hmm. a vagina. We 
we see where that's yeah. going. And I think in the in your news article, it was like over 200 requests were sent for as it stood yeah, for like the year in California. 260 just in California. Yeah. yeah. And uh, in a recent attempt in I think Washington state, someone put in a Freedom of Information Act request to the state to try to find out how many, you know, uh, people who are being transferred or who are claiming to be trans to go to women's prisons um, are actually being being transferred. And the ACLU stepped in and, and filed a lawsuit against them to prevent the uh, the government from, or prevent the prisons from giving the information out. So it's just like, what's going on there? I mean, I, I usually liken this to like, you know, as I said before, you don't just deny a whole aspect of reality without bad, you know, things coming up and, and, and exposing it for how flawed it really is. And to me, like, trans or people claiming to be trans exploiting gender ideology and sex spectrum pseudoscience stuff to just like transfer prisons to 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 get in a female prison like that's just like an example of 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 this kind of coming back to bite you like it's it's clearly a flawed ideology this is what you would expect when you're denying such a big fundamental aspect of reality and the aclu instead of sort of trying to stand up for the women who are in these prisons who are probably afraid that they're maybe going to get raped by these individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they they ignore them and instead they try to just block all inquiry. So, you know, sunlight is like the greatest disinfectant and stuff. And it's mm-hmm. just really telling that they'd rather their knee jerk reaction is to just stop all inquiry and just bury the data rather than uh, sort of embrace the, the ideology that they've been pushing for, for so long and saying, you know, well, we don't care if they're, they're women, they should go to women's prison. You would so, expect to see a similar, a similar request for transfer from the trans men though, wouldn't you? If it was truly because they were discomfort, <laughs> yeah. they were uncomfortable or being surrounded by like the opposite, um, you know, gender, like that was the main underlying reason what, you know, why people are wanting to switch. You would expect that these trans men are trying to go over to the male camps. Yeah, to, I would assume that's probably not happening. They need to get there. Yeah. I mean, same thing with sports and everything. I mean, you don't see the trans men trying to play in, in men's sports. I mean, every once in a while, you'll get like one or two, but they're, they're not really competitive and um, they don't really pose a threat to. There's not like a movement behind it. Yeah, not at all. Yeah. I was going to say, I've, I've never seen anything that was talking about trans men's rights for sports. So to me, that's a little bit fascinating and Almost like I hate to be cynical or pessimistic, but it does seem a little bit like nefarious. Like there's some funny business happening here because it's so one sided. Like I don't see a lot of this aggression happening from trans men. I actually don't ever see any conversations about trans men, um, really, aside from like the bathroom stuff once in a while. I'll see that come up. Um, Oh, no, I'm sorry. No, that's that's still trans women as well. Um, so yeah, I don't really see any conversations happening with a huge part of that, that group. So to me, I'm like, well, something's off here because what it seems on at least like a a surface level is that biological women are fucked. We're like almost going backwards before feminism and before, you know, we were allowed to wear pants or, you know, all these ridiculous things because we don't have space anymore. And to me, it's like the feminists who are supposed to stand up for women are now supporting biological men and saying to the women, you're now 
exclusionary or you're bigoted or whatever this is. So we're not allowed to have sports anymore. We're not allowed to have our own like space anymore. Like even rape centers are now taking in trans women, which to me, again, I think if someone just went through like that trauma, maybe do what's best for them. I don't know. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's only women's spaces that are getting compromised. I mean, you see, you see it in a lot of, there was a, someone did like these, this, a thread on, on some bathrooms uh, in buildings where they didn't have a third gender neutral option. So they had to turn one bathroom into the gender neutral one. And which one do you think that was? Well, it was, there was always like the men's room and then there's like the all gender restroom. So it's the women's restroom that just has to like be accommodating to males and females, whereas males, we get our own, you know, bathroom because like, no one really cares about that. I mean, there's also, you know, the men's bathroom has the the urinals, which um, is sort of specialized for males, I guess. But um, still, it's 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 women who have to give up their spaces, or at least being, I was going to say, asked, but they're being forced to <laughs> sort of just step aside and not have spaces where they can just sort of, um, you know, have for themselves and reinforce sort of those types of boundaries. Mm-hmm. I think unfortunately, there's going to have to be a certain amount of discomfort or pain or for example with the sports like loss of scholarships before we kind of see what's happening and maybe course correct but I was watching uh, this YouTube video and it was this young I think she was like a college athlete or maybe she was she might have actually been a high school athlete that was trying to get scholarship and she got knocked down because some biological um males took her and like some of her teammates spot for track and she was like I was supposed to get a ride to college and now I lost it. And it's like, this is affecting real people. Like this isn't just yeah. theory anymore. Yeah. That was in, in a high school in Connecticut, I think. Um, and the, the girls are suing, I think the, the school or maybe even the state or something um, based on sort of title nine stuff, because um, yeah, it was the case that there were two, two trans girls who decided they wanted to run on track and they don't even require any, hormone suppression, even though we know that that's actually not sufficient to get rid of the advantage. Mm -hmm. They were just non-hormonally transitioned males. I mean, they're just just males who identified just just purely based on Mm self-ID. And they went and got first and second. They like beat the state records (laughs) in these categories too. It's, you know, where where are the the trans men who are like shattering the the men's records? Mm -hmm. Like it just just doesn't happen. So, um, yeah, I think unfortunately it might have to get a lot worse mm-hmm. and absurd before it gets better because I mean at some point it's just it's it's a, it, I mean it it is absurd to me but I don't think many people realize the how bad the problem could get and so it's really going to take just sort of um more trans athletes I guess just breaking records and stealing scholarships uh, mm-hmm. for this to get better you know it, it really it's going to come down to at some point female athletes, you know, for when they're at the starting block, they just need to not participate. Like why are they just not even run? Just, you know, the gun goes off and just stand there. And they just stand up and walk away or something like that could end it just like instantly. Yeah. <laughs> if they could do that. I think that's um, a great idea. But uh, it's, it's really tough because any of the athletes who do speak up just by themselves, they get targeted so hard. They lose uh, uh, sponsorships. I mean, there's this athlete named Rachel McKinnon. She's, a trans woman who's won um, some like world championships of, of bicycling, uh, cycling against women. And 
just on Twitter, some people, you know, voiced that they didn't think this was fair. And she realized the athlete who spoke against her was sponsored by, I think it was Specialized, the bike company. And she just tweets like, hey, Specialized, you know, you're this person is a transphobe and blah, blah, blah. And then Specialized is like, we're investigating this right now. And like, I think she lost her sponsorship just for a comment on Twitter that she thought it was unfair that Rachel McKinnon was able to compete. So this is what happens when when you speak up against it, at least when you speak up in isolation. So I would like to see some some private polls <laughs> being done uh, by some athletes, because if you're just going by, you know, everyone raise your hand who's against this, like, well, you know, people aren't going to want to be, you know, outing themselves. So they, mm-hmm. they need to be some way to get some surveys to see, uh, even just for, so the athletes themselves know how many people around them are, are on their side, because that might help them realize that, you know, they, they can actually speak up because they are, in fact, the majority, which... Mm-hmm. They have to be. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the most frustrating part of this whole debate is the majority, I think, is clearly on our side and on the side of sanity. It's just, you know, the, the activists are so loud and they will just go for your career. It's just the opportunity cost you pay uh, for speaking out. This can be so high. I think it's it's got to be temporary, though. So um, I was listening to Joe Rogan. I forget who he was talking to. Um, someone else who had like a really big platform. And they were explaining how these private companies or like sponsors, for example, will pull out if they get like 200 comments that are negative or these politicians will start to change policy if they get, you know, 100 people that say you're the worst per- person or you're this, that or the other because they're so not used to getting um, what they would consider a dog pile on social media. But once you get to a certain following, that's like a Tuesday. And then you get desensitized to it. Yeah. So I'm kind of hoping that's what happens with these big companies. It's like someone goes after Coca-Cola and they just have 2,000 people say that they're terrible because they're not doing enough inclusion training or whatever it is. That They're like, okay, well, it's Tuesday and we'll just sign off for the day and this will just pass. So I think people have to get over that shock value and realize that there's no real meaning behind it or no real consequence unless you allow it to be there. Yeah. I mean, a, a Twitter pile on, I, mean, I remember the first time it happened to me. It was horrifying experience. You just feel like, oh my god, everything's everything's horrible and the world's coming down on me. But it really isn't. It's really just some people just going mad. But it could be a group as you know little as ten people, or even if it's more than that, it's just like they're just little comments on on Twitter. And in my case, I think it you know it can affect your career in some cases if they're sending emails out and things like that. But a lot of the corporations, I think, they're just they're overwhelmed with the pushback on social media and they think that's reflective of society in general. And a lot of times they'll just, their knee jerk reaction is just like, Oh, just apologize. And we'll let our diversity person like write it up. And so it's just like this boilerplate, you know, blather that's just like, Oh yeah, we'll, you know, try to learn more and we're inclusive and all this stuff. And they think that'll just be the end of it, but that's not like, that's just like chum Mm -hmm. in the water for these people. They see like a little concession and that's just, is their signal to go and they can extract more out of you if they got a little. So my, my advice to anyone who's like a target of these sort of Twitter pylons is like, just don't apologize. And you can really just ignore it for the most part because their attention spans are so ephemeral. If they, if they don't see that they're going to get anything out of you, there's some other person who's saying something that they'll just immediately pivot and just like try to get something out of them. So yeah, it's having been the target of a lot of pylons, it's just, it doesn't even matter anymore. <laughs> I don't, I don't mm-hmm. I'm, I'm numb to it. 
I think that um, that advice to not uh, not apologize is really good. And this is like on the um, like the front of my mind because I was just watching this like this Bears documentary with my son earlier today, and it's just um, like just a little, it just follows a family of bears, and there's like commentary like what the bears are saying and all this and explaining like the social interactions. And there's this one scene where there's like the mama bear and she's got two babies and she's kind of trying to find some food. And then she comes across this outsider bear. Like he's been exiled from everyone else. And um, I guess bear male bears can eat baby bears that I didn't know that was a thing. So they're explaining that she, even though is like, half the size of this male has to stand her ground and pretend that, you know, she's not scared and that she's like this force to be reckoned with. And if she can do that convincingly enough that the male bearer will just leave her alone and go to try to, to find food that's easier to attain, right? Like someone that's not going to put up a fight. And to me, I don't really see much of a difference, especially like when you come down to the psychology of it, it's like, if you leave that opening for weakness, then they're just going to lunge in and attack just like the bear would. So I don't know why it just made yeah, me really laugh. A good, so it's, yeah. It's definitely a good analogy for that. Like the, the other route you go is just to like out crazy them, I suppose. And just <laughs> hit them back is, is even, even harder. I know some people like this one guy, Pedro uh, Domingos, he's a professor or at least was, I can't remember where, but he does like AI research and he was the target of a, Twitter mob because he spoke out against, um, you know, I don't know the whole story, but there was people saying that AI was, was bigoted or racist or something. I heard and that. So he, and, and there were people that were just, you know, making lists of anyone who like liked and retweeted his tweets in, in his field. And so all these people and researchers were just freaked out because the, like the president or vice president or something of this major AI corporation was, was making lists of everyone who retweeted this guy. Um, and so Pedro went, he went at them hard and he just like highlighted what they're doing, why it's wrong. And he actually was able to snuff this out by just out aggressing them and just, you know, <laughs> highlighting what they were doing. He was relentless. He wrote a piece for Quillette actually uh, sort of giving tips on how to survive these things and how to push back. It was really, I can't remember the title, um, something like, success in AI research or something countering the mob. But uh, yeah, it was, it's really good. There's, we've seen a couple more pieces I know on Barry Weiss's Substack and um, other places where people are sort of writing these, like, here's what to do if you're at the target of a, of mm -hmm. a pylon or a, you know, a mob is coming after you and mm -hmm. just sort of sharing their stories about like what, what worked and what didn't work. And I think that's sort of what people need to read because um, it can, it can blindside you and they'll come at you with a bunch of, you know, these, these postmodern language and ideologies that you don't even know what they're saying. So you don't even know how to respond. And so you, you just want to like say, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I'll go and research this. And then you realize that like it's impossible to research in just like an afternoon. Um, mm -hmm. And then if when you can't really understand it because it makes no sense anyway. So yeah, just don't apologize. Yeah. And it's <laughs> all intentional my, too. Big, like the, it's all intentional as far as making it confusing. So there's that quote where if you can't explain it in just a few words, then you don't know enough about the subject. And when I listen to yeah. some of these people that – and it, in the beginning, I was like, wow, that person is so smart and maybe I should listen to them and learn about this this topic. Like I don't want to not be informed or I don't want to be um, – 
I guess like rude or cruel or whatever. And then like the more you listen to this person, you're like they don't know what they're talking about. Like this is just gibberish and like round and round we go. Yeah. I mean, it's complete, it's complete gibberish. I mean, they just the way they equivocate with between words like sex and gender. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they do. I've, I've talked to Helen Joyce about this. She's really great on this gender ideology and she describes it because she's coming from a mathematical background and she says, what well, this ide- ideology does is it divides by zero somewhere along the line of the algebra. And when you divide by zero, that means you can basically get any answer you want after that. Because, you know, if, you're, if your denominator is, is, is nothing, you can just, you know, make infinities out of, out of thin air. And you can, uh, you know, make any equality that you want. You can say like one plus one equals five or something if you're, if you're just um, dividing by zero somewhere along the logic. And that's what they're doing when they're just equivocating things that aren't the same. They just, and they, they'll do these little quick equivocations. And now they're just from that point on, they're talking about something completely else. And then they, they have so many of these where they can just flip flop back and forth where it's just like a heads. I win tails. You lose. You can't win the argument because they just, they're they'll shift the language under your feet so quickly. Um, and you know, it's hard to point out when you're not used to it, but as you sort of interact with it more, you can just see these moves like in real time. And uh, that's that's something that I think is important to try to understand is seeing the moves they're making, um, understand what those moves are, and then how to how to sort of point them out and try to expose them. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's a lot of work though because it, it is there's a big learning curve for a lot of this like critical theory postmodern stuff, mm-hmm. and no, not everyone can be like a James Lindsay who's just you know <laughs> can just dice it up like instantly he's um, fierce he just so. doesn't stop <laughs> i i talked to him once and you know like just tell me what critical race theory is like you know elevator pitch and he can just keep going like there's just so much to do <laughs> and there's just so many influences on the ideology um but at the end of the day you don't you don't really need to know <laughs> the history of these ideas to some degree as long as you understand like how to just to make like a basic argument and uh able to point out some sort of logical fallacies along the way. Um, Because really, I mean, a lot of the stuff they do is just, just non sequiturs are just equivocating. And um, yeah, I think me debating creationists and intelligent design people back in the day really helped because I see, you see a lot of the same, the same moves that they do. And I was like, I've been here before. This is like the young earth creationist trying to say, you know, it's the argument from complexity. Now you get the intelligent design people saying that, well, the eye is way too complex to have evolved and therefore evolution's bankrupt. And you get the same thing with the people who are trying to say that biological sex isn't real. They'd be like, oh, you know, it's like hormones and it's this and that. And it's just so complex and no one really knows what biological sex really is fundamentally. And, you know, there's the same types of maneuvers that they do. It's just like, I've been here before. I've <laughs> heard that exactly argument the too. the same type of thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That yeah. it's so, so it's, complicated. It's the same thing. Yeah. And it's amazing how you can see these two completely separate groups like there's probably not a big overlap between young earth creationists and the people who are you know the social justice critical theory type people mm-hmm. but man it's the same same type of arguments just like modified in slight different ways uh they're just put out there again and again and just like the creationists they're debunked again and again and you just keep seeing the same things they just don't even they just don't even take the the criticism they just keep saying them mm. it's uh it's fascinating so if if this goes to an extreme where 
let's say they win the argument and, you know, a hundred years down the road, there is, we say that there is no sex and there is no gender. I guess, what is the, like, where do you see the significance of that? Or what would be like possible consequences? And would there be any benefits to that dissolution? I don't see any benefits. I mean, you have, you can't have any sort of, you're going to, you know, in terms of medicine, you're not going to be able to do proper diagnoses on things. You're going to, you know, family planning. How do you even approach that when you're not identifying the biological sex is real? You're not going to have female sports. You're just going to have one big prison where everyone gets thrown into the same thing. So you're going to have, you know, sexual assaults are going to go out of control if, you know, Mm -hmm. we can't segregate people based on sex. Um, And it's, it's not even so much just if sex is denied, but it's, it's just the general lack of a tether to reality that that like pathway has on everything else we're talking about too. I mean, I think denying biological sex is a huge important thing for us as a species to acknowledge, but it's really just this, if we, if we can't make any statements about the reality of certain categories because queer theory just wants to blur every line or obliterate them completely, then you, you just, you can't do anything. You just, you can't make progress if, everything can just be interpreted one way or the other. And there's no, there's no grounding. There's no anchor uh, to anything that's fundamental and real. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just, to me, that's like a horrifying, that's just the ultimate state of chaos. I can imagine where no one can, <laughs> can say anything that's true. It's just, everything is about your lived experience. Um, you can't actually achieve any sort of real social justice. If you can't actually make factual claims about oppression or, uh, the, the facts on the ground of, of what's influencing people and holding them back. So, I mean, I know they're, they're doing this in the name of social justice, but man, I just, I can't think of anything that's more counterproductive <laughs> to actually achieving real justice than denying biology, denying all the facts on the ground and be able to make any sort of uh, distinguishing between any certain categories. Um, I don't even know what justice would look like if you can't ground it in something real. It just makes no sense to me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It does seem like More a fun. lot, <laughs> a lot of wasted energy that would be a lot more helpful if we targeted it somewhere else, like somewhere more substantial. And I think we're in this really crazy place where people are talking about another war with, you know, the other superpowers and someone brought it up there. It was Tim Kennedy today on his Instagram. And he was like, this is what's wrong with America right now. And he like was showing that someone, you know, this um, museum had been defaced and we're trying to deny or rewrite history. And then the, the second slide had like a very obese man and a military um, guard with a mask on. And he was like, we are so concerned about hurting feelings that we're avoiding facts. Like no one even today, like there's not a main narrative that's saying most people um, that died from COVID were very overweight. So maybe we should get moving. Like no one's saying that. Bill Maher did a little bit on his his show the other day too, saying we the same thing. So we would rather die than hurt someone's feelings and actually be able to change things. And the scary thing is, is that that's not like China doesn't give a shit about your feelings. Russia doesn't give a shit about your feelings. And they're not having these arguments. And we should be focusing on things that could be a really big deal years down the road or maybe even 
less than that. We have no idea, not to sound like a doomsdayer or something, but just to point out that there's other things that are a lot more important than whether or not you feel like someone's respecting your your vision of the world, whether it might be true for you or not. Um, yeah, I. Yeah, it seems like we're just trying to change the environment to make it. You know, we're we're trying to like. I've heard someone describe it as like paving the jungle rather than like giving people boots in order to like navigate it. You know, yeah, there's like that old thing, yogi like, quote. Is that what that is? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I do think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, we can it, can, it can be both things. We can try to make the environment, you know, accommodating to people. But fundamentally, I mean, I'd rather just teach people to try to be robust individuals that can withstand a lot of criticism and being uncomfortable. I mean, you look at people like Buck Angel. I mean, he's, he said how people will still call him she just mm-hmm. to be assholes. Mm-hmm. And he just laughed. He's like, I don't care. Like, why would <laughs> I care? Like, I'm comfortable in who I am. Like, yeah, everyone can just screw up. Like, that's just, I mean, that's what Buck does. But anyone, someone else would just crumble in Buck's position if, if mm-hmm. they were to call them, you know, misgender them. And it's just like, that's just like in a sense of personal choice you can make of how you're going to how you're going to take this type of environment, you know, when people are going to be mean and people are always going to be mean. You can't, you can't force people not to be mean. They will. You just have to not let it get to you. I mean, there's, as long as we all have the laws put in place where like, you know, you can't actually be discriminated against based on some of these fundamental characters and identities and things, um, except where it matters, like in sports, you know, we need to be able to discriminate between males and females um, just for, for safety reasons and Mm -hmm. fairness and all that stuff. But, uh, yeah, I mean, and I think for the most part, we're there, too. Um, so we're having these debates that are just they're just like spinning our wheels, not going anywhere. Like, we, we've achieved a lot of what we need to. Um, but, you know, the existence of some transphobe or some racist person out there is just whips everyone into a, a, a fury, um, no matter how how few people are actually out there espousing these these bigoted ideas. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you don't see the gender debate happening in in China, the pronouns and all that stuff. And I mean, it's 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 really concerning to me. We were just focusing on something so so unimportant, <laughs> and I know people will get angry by hearing that, but it's I just can't be bothered to care too much about it until they are actually trying to distort reality. And that's that's where I just sort of that's that's why I'm, that's why I talk about it because I feel like they're doing a lot more harm. Than they're, than they're fixing. Yeah, I think so too. And that's why I keep having the conversation because I, I see how it could potentially affect like kids specifically in the school system because a lot of um, like the mandated education around it is very confusing and it's kind of creating that, um, I guess like, I guess for lack of better words, like that dysphoria. So I'm like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, but at the same time, if it really matters because now we're we're seeing it getting passed into law and then that should be alarming for everybody. And again, like we're having these conversations. If you called me a dude I or kept referring to me as a man, I'd be like, what's this guy's deal? But I, it wouldn't ruin my day. It wouldn't affect me on any level outside the conversation. I would just probably think that you were a dick and move on with my life. Um and we can sit there and we can just have these com- arguments or these conversations and try to force everyone to see the world as you see it. 
But what's going to happen, I think, is the vast majority of people are going to say, this is a waste of my time. I'm going to continue on with my life. And as science progresses and as the world progresses, I feel like those people are going to fall by the wayside. I think once you start talking about like CRISPR, for example, you're going to have people with a lot of extra means that are going to start bioengineering their babies. And you're going to be over here having a conversation about your pronouns and how people um, identify or include you. And they're going to be making little supermans (laughs) that are just going to outperform your kids if you decide to have them on all fronts. So I think we really need to... um, I guess, like, be aware of, like, the importance of these arguments. Are we just arguing because we don't have anything else going on in our lives and this is the most important, meaningful part of my day is to, you know, create social justice in the way that I see? I know you have to ask a lot more why questions. Yeah, I mean, it's just an obsession with with identity. Mm-hmm. And it's just something I've never understood too much. I remember I, I had... A long-term girlfriend before and so I've, I've always been an atheist um and so she who just didn't believe in god and then richard dawkins there was a whole episode where he had commented on someone's uh someone got invited at like an atheist convention up to a room uh to a, to have a cup of coffee and it was like you know it was like a sexual invitation you know that was you know would you like to come up for a cup of coffee and then some woman thought this was just like the most egregious thing that ever happened to her. And then Dawkins sort of juxtaposed her story with like uh, that of a Muslim woman, like, sorry, Muslim woman, you can't talk about genital mutilation because haven't you heard like some women in the United States get offered coffee in an elevator. Uh, <laughs> and she thought this was like the most horrific thing like my, my ex-girlfriend did. And then she said that, you know, because of that, she no longer identified as an atheist. And I, I remember thinking, like, what do you mean? Like, you you believe in God now because of this? And she's like, well, no, I don't believe in God. I just don't identify as an atheist. And I was like, well, it's not something you identify. Like, atheism is a conclusion. Why are we identifying with conclusions? <laughs> and I see this happening now, too, with where you get people identifying with, uh, you know, their gender identity and, you know, politics is, comes into it. People now identify with, like, being autistic. It's like an identity now, too. Like, you, there's this this move for identifying with, with certain medical conditions. Mm-hmm. And when it gets in the realm of politics and conclusions, that's just so dangerous because every conclusion you have should be tentative to some degree, or at least able to be falsifiable <laughs> and potentially falsifiable. Um, and if you're identifying with conclusions, then if someone shows that your argument is flawed, then this like, this is going to trigger like an identity crisis now. Like you really should keep your identity as, as small as you can and not like attach it onto things outside of you because things change. You know, you're, mm-hmm. if hopefully if you're a thinking person, you're not going to think about the same things. You're not going to hold all the same conclusions uh, you did before. <laughs> and I just can't imagine why anyone would want to identify with these things. Like it just, it makes absolutely no sense. Um, and this is what we're seeing. We're seeing now, like when I wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal, um, pushing back against, you know, it was called the dangerous denial of sex. Um, people at Penn State, the students there where I was working, they said that that piece made them feel unsafe because it was denying the existence of non-binary people or something. And it's just like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, biological sex is real. You can be non-binary and you're still male or female. Like, 
I don't know what else to say. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to attack you. <laughs> I'm a little ant biologist. That's like, <laughs> why are you scared? Um, but that's, I mean, it's just identity is reign, reign supreme right now. And you can't challenge it because it's considered like an attack on an individual. Um, they can't separate sort of the criticism of, of certain ideas with criticisms of them as like a human. Um, so that's, that just seems to be where everything sort of gets boiled down to and why people are so upset because uh, inability to detach those, t- those things from one another. Yeah. I think the fascination with identity is really interesting. You also posted um, a thought exercise that someone had tweeted that was comparing identify, like identifying as a different race and they were saying, well, if you can identify as a different gender, then why is it wrong if you identify as a different race when the um, the science and the biology behind race is a lot more open to interpretation than is sex? And it caused mm-hmm. like quite a stir. And people might say that this is um, this is a reach or that's never going to actually be a thing. But I was filling out some forms for. Um, for school for for my kid and it would say identify like in the race column it would ask what you identify as not what you are and I was like when did that happen and that seems problematic because um, I mean there's certain like affirmative actions right so if I say that I identify as as black is that fair like I don't I don't think that that's right. Or if I identify, mm-hmm. so I'm I'm Asian. So if I want to identify as white and deny that part because I want to have a higher acceptance rate into a university, because obviously we know that Chinese kids are mm-hmm. being denied. So like, let's pretend that I'm not this thing. I don't know. It's just I didn't know that we could choose that. And then I was talking to Deborah too, and she was saying that there's this phenomenon where people can identify as trees, and that's really interesting. Yeah. So at what point do we say this is like a men, this is, there's something wrong. If you think, if you identify as a tree, that's a mental disorder. That's not healthy for anybody. Yeah. I mean, there's like the body, what's it called? Body integrity disorder or something like that, where people can identify as being like a paraplegic or as a, someone who has amputated limbs, even if they don't. And they they want to get a limb amputated because they just they they identify as someone who shouldn't or doesn't have legs or something and i mean these are just we can a lot of people have no problem pointing that out as being like this is a medical condition this person uh you know it's it's self harm if they chop their leg off or have a doctor chop their leg off and should doctors is it allowed? Be people's legs off um i'm actually not sure i don't i don't think it is um but it seems like that's a clear case of most people saying like, yeah, this people shouldn't maybe be allowed to have their limbs amputated or, you know, maybe, maybe they should, I don't know, but it seems this is indicative of of some sort of mental problem that needs to be addressed. But then if, if you, instead of saying, you know, this is a leg, well, let's just talk about breasts and your genitals now. And that's Mm -hmm. somehow it's accepted um, or at least, you know, much more widely accepted uh, than than other other forms. And then you have like the other kin, which Deborah So was talking about, which are people that identify with objects and other animals and things like that. Um, th- there seems to be a delay with like Tumblr and what becomes trickles into society. So a lot of this stuff and of puberty blockers and P 
people claiming that like we should all be on puberty blockers. Uh, I saw until that. we can all identify you know, what we, you know, what we our, our gender identity truly is. Like that should be the default. And that started on Tumblr like three years ago, and then like now people are actually making this argument. You'll see signs, people saying like puberty is optional. Like they should, everyone should be on them at first <laughs> before they you know they figure things out. Um, and so I think the the other kin stuff is is predicted to maybe start trickling out <laughs> of the of the Tumblr sphere and and into into society. So we'll see what's how that goes. I mean, what's interesting yeah. about that too is so when it comes, I saw that I think you might have retweeted it or maybe James did, and that article that was suggesting everyone go on puberty block blockers until they know. But isn't the issue with that is once someone goes through puberty like that's like a very um like that's a very important part of of knowing if they actually have gender dysphoria or if it's um that they were actually just gay or maybe they just they were gender non-conforming like that's a very um pivotal point in knowing where that child falls so if you delay that aren't you delaying that conclusion yeah there's a weird notion that like you're your true self or something before you go through puberty and that you know, if you if, if you identify whatever you identify before hormones have entered the picture, um, at least you know the hormones you get as you're going through puberty, um, that that's your that's your true self, and you know you can uh, if 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 you're if you go through puberty, that's you know you can accept these changes, but that's somehow not as fundamentally you as as your pure self, you know, pre-pubertal person. It's just really it's really bizarre the way we like are treating children like they're these little oracles who know <laughs> everything about mm-hmm. themselves and mm-hmm. that how they're going to feel for the rest of their life. Cause man, I, I, I'm just picturing myself when I was 12 or 13 and I was an idiot. Like I didn't yeah, me too. know anything when I was even younger, I thought I was a Ninja Turtle. And <laughs> it, I mean, there's just, I didn't, there's just no space of where I could have been considered like a mature anything when mm-hmm. I was even 20, like I, I was not even like a mature person in many ways. It probably am still not like it's I'm still growing a lot in this the last decade of my life. So, yeah. And who knows what I'll believe in another decade from now. Hey everyone, Candace here. So thank you, first of all, for tuning into this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation. We had a little bit of technical difficulties towards the end of the show, so we had to wrap it up right here. I do apologize, but stick around for round two. I'm going to ask Colin to join us again in the near future. So again, I apologize for the technical difficulties and thank you for listening.